0: Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for November 18th, 2020. Thanks, as always, for checking out the show. Uh, If you like this interview, you want to hear more interviews like this, Uh, Read more about foreign affairs, international news, U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Please check out foreign exchanges at Substack, uh, .substack fx.substack.com. Come by and sign up for our free email list. uh, Or, even better, uh, become a subscriber and support uh, this kind of stuff uh, so I can do more of it. I hope you're all doing well, Uh, you know, as well as possible, I guess. Uh, This is probably uh, going to be uh, our last podcast before thanksgiving uh so i i, I don't want to say definitely cuz there's a slim chance there could be another one uh, before then but assuming that it is uh happy thanksgiving in advance to anybody who will be celebrating that holiday and happy diwali uh to anybody who is celebrating diwali this week um i think that's i don't think i missed any holidays if i did i apologize and uh, happy whatever it is that I missed. <laughs> but uh, I thought I'd get those two in there, at least. Uh, today, I'm very happy to be uh, bringing back on the program, uh, returning champion, uh, our most frequent guest, Alexander Thurston. Uh, Alex is the assistant professor of political science, or an assistant professor, I guess I should say, of political science at the University of Cincinnati. He specializes in Islam and politics, uh, with a focus on North Africa and the Sahel. Uh, He's been on the show many times to talk about that region, uh, to talk about Boko Haram, for example, in Nigeria, or to talk about the many uh, jihadist groups in Mali, uh, to talk about Burkina Faso. Uh, So we've had him on a few times to talk about that region, which is a very active region for uh, not great things to be happening these days. Uh, But today, uh, he's here to talk about his new book, uh, which is called Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel local politics and rebel groups i think it's uh, uh it's a very interesting take uh, on the phenomenon of jihadist organizations and jihadist movements, uh, that really is applicable far beyond um, the region, the North Africa slash Sahel region, uh, and uh, you know has has a great deal to say about the uh, you know let's say war on terror, for lack of a better term, uh, more broadly. And so we're going to get into some big questions. I hope uh, about how. Uh, Most of us approach the issue of uh, jihadism and jihadist organizations uh, and the their goals and their operations and the threat that they pose. Uh, and we'll talk about some of the, you know, sort of overarching uh, details of his book, but you should definitely go uh, and grab it while you can. I'm well, I'm sure you can grab it anytime, but you should definitely go grab it. Um, it's available uh, really wherever you buy your books or your audio. Well, I don't know if there's an audio book, actually, that's a question I can ask him. Uh, so I have to remember, I'll write that down. Uh, ask him if there's an audio book. Um, I meant to say wherever you buy your uh, online materials, if you buy, if you prefer uh, electronic books uh, in that format. So, wherever you buy your books, wherever you buy your electronic books for your Kindle or whatever device you have, uh, it's available. Uh, now uh, go check it out. I will put a link to at least one place where you can find the book uh, in the show description. Uh, I'll also put a link to Alex's blog, which I've mentioned many times on the show before. Sahel blog. It's sahelblog.wordpress.com. You should go check that out as well. Uh, with all of that uh, as uh, intro, I guess uh, I'm going to get Alex on the line and we'll start the interview. Okay, I am being joined by Alexander Thurston, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati. His new book, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel Local Politics and Rebel Groups, uh, is available for purchase now, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Alex, Alex, thank you uh, so much for coming back on the show, the returning champion. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, Always a pleasure. Uh, so... I want to start – this is a book that I think uh, provides a a really useful, important corrective to the way that we – all – I mean, not all, but most of us tend to approach uh, the issue of uh, Islamist jihadist groups. um, And and we're sort of wired up, I think, by the war on terror – Uh, to view the activities of groups like, uh, you know, a lot of them you and I have talked about on this this show before, Boko Haram, uh, you know, Islamic State in West Africa, uh, JNIM in Mali, we're wired up to sort of view these groups as extensions of a kind of global jihadist movement or a global jihadist kind of industry, I guess. Um, even to the point where I do this. I mean, I, I do this myself all the time. You sort of identify them by which of the two competing brands, like the Coke and the Pepsi of Jihad, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, which one are they affiliated with? And this is like a big deal uh, in terms of kind of assessing these groups or identifying them. Um, I think What what is your criticism, in a nutshell, of that approach uh, to talking about these kinds of organizations.
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, and, and the book is meant to be a history of a particular region. But then, as you say, it's also meant to intervene in, in this broader kind of conversation. I think, I mean, above all, I want to I criticize the view of, of Al Qaeda and the Islamic State as these heavily top down and, and cohesive organizations. And and I also think a lot of the techniques that were elaborated for analyzing Al Qaeda in particular, and, and that have remained very influential, are basically techniques for analyzing terrorist cells. And, you know, for the past, I mean, even the past uh, decade or so, you have some of these jihadist movements operating as, as pretty large scale movements. I mean, with, you know, hundreds of fighters and and holding territory and so forth. Obviously, the biggest example of that is the Islamic State. And so, you know, the framework of, of a small, you know, top down terrorist cell can't really explain what what ends up looking like almost mass movements in certain places. And to my mind, these these mass movements then need to be understood as as coalitions. And there's a lot of political science literature that speaks to that about how basically every armed group is a coalition. And Either it starts as a coalition or over time, internal divisions and fractures emerge and then it ends up being a kind of a coalition. That there's no sort of, even if people are are united around an ideology, even if they're formally part of of Al-Qaeda's hierarchy or the Islamic State's hierarchy, that in practice, there are going to be these different kind of constituencies within jihadist groups. And then they're going to interact with all sorts of forces around them. And often they're going to compromise or they're going to have some limited shared interest with local politicians or with uh, people in local economies, you know, especially sort of smuggling or kidnapping economies or things like that. And so, you know, really, for me, then the the focus of the book came to land on the on the jihadist field commander, you know, and, and what is his and it's it's always him, basically what what is his role as a politician? Right. How does he relate to people in, in the political sense of, of negotiating all these relationships, trying to keep his fighters happy, trying to deal with his superiors, pushing back against superiors, uh, you know, interacting with with the society or the or the forces around him, uh, arguing with rival field commanders, etc. So I hope that the image of jihadism that comes across in the book is is as something pretty fluid. I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, many of the people aren't Ideologically hardline, but it does mean that it's just—it's pretty hard to be one of these field commanders. I mean, I'm not voicing sympathy for them, but they—you <laughs> they, know—they have, they have to, you know, they—they they have to think on their feet a lot, and and it just couldn't be otherwise. Um, so yeah, so the view of of you know that that there can be a certain global understanding of Al Qaeda or the Islamic State—it just after a while that perspective just isn't able to capture these these fast
0: moving realities on the ground i wonder i mean in in your mind is there any utility anymore or was there ever even uh, i think there probably was at one point around you know uh nine eleven sort of the this the start of the uh, global war on terror um in in looking at these organizations in terms of a of an international movement um like i don't i don't see uh as much as it's sort of ingrained in my head to think of them that way, I I don't know that it's even applicable anymore. And I look at, um, you know, two, if you look at the two kind of brands, the Islamic State and and Al Qaeda, um, you know, Abu Bakr Baghdadi died, was killed, killed himself, whatever, however you want to term it, uh, you know, a a while back in, in Syria. And I had to look up uh, the name of the guy who replaced him for this interview, Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Karashi. I had to look him up, and I write about foreign affairs for for my for a living as a full time job, uh, and I had to look it up because it's so irrelevant to to just the any kind of coverage of this stuff. Um, there's there're rumors now that Ayman al-Zawahiri died, just kind of mm-hmm. died of natural causes uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and and. It's like the reactions that you know. There's a story in the New York Times that the number two guy in Al Qaeda was killed probably by Israeli agents in Tehran. And the like the the implication of of these things is like, who cares? Like, what what does that do? What how does that change the way that these organizations are functioning in different places around the world? And I don't I don't think it does. And that says something at least to me. I don't know about you about about the utility of even thinking about. Uh, this stuff in global terms anymore.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, yeah, 97%. I mean, I think I think some of these leaders remain extremely powerful symbols, right? I mean, even bin Laden, almost now a decade after his death, he remains a really powerful symbol. He's invoked in all kinds of ways. Definitely, there are communications, you know, up and down the the hierarchy, right? and And you know, leaders such as Zawahiri, if he's if he's alive or dead, you know, they sometimes do put out guidance. Presumably they try to influence things behind the scenes even more than what one sees in public. Um, there are transfers of money and trainers and so forth. And uh, you know presumably that can can affect the you know, the course of a conflict in certain ways. But, yeah, I mean, I think I think you see that struggle for relevance, not just at the global level, but even at the regional level. I mean, you and I talked, you know, have talked about um Abd al-Malik Drukdel, the, the emir of um, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, who was killed by French forces in June. And a lot of the media coverage, I think, rightly pointed out that that he had been eclipsed even before his death by some of the, the Malian jihadist leaders. Um, now it's been what? I mean, I guess over five months since his death and and aqim hasn't replaced you know hasn't announced a replacement um, there doesn't seem to be an obvious replacement and so yeah I mean even even at that regional level um the 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 leaders seem influential less influential than they did maybe even you know 10 15 years ago
0: you get into this issue of, of sort of the global the manuals for, for conduct, like Zahari wrote one, uh, you cite another by a, a guy, a pseudonymous, I think, uh, Abu Bakr Naji. Um, and your conclusion is that these are not terribly useful documents for people who are on the ground at the field commander level, let's say, kind of maintaining uh, these organizations. Talk a little bit about that and, and the sort of guidance that, that these guys get from, uh, you know, corporate, (laughs) in a sense, the corporate headquarters uh, that that isn't really necessarily very helpful to them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I mean, those forms of guidance and, and, you know, maybe there's more detailed guidance behind the scenes, but even in some of the correspondence, you know, captured from, from bin Laden's compound, I mean, it's clear that, you know, a people could just be be overtaken by by events right i mean i have i have one chapter where i where i close by talking about a a communication between bin laden and and the leader of al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula at the time talking about you know where where the aqap leader had said you know if you wanted to take sana today is the day right and bin laden saying no no let's be cautious and, and then I, I close by saying it's, it's the houthis who rule there right i mean even to some extent you know these these debates among jihadists can be eclipsed but yeah, I mean the in terms of the manuals themselves, I mean they're they're generic, they're often relatively brief, they're sometimes overly schematic. Um and I don't even think there could be a guideline. I mean, how can how can you, you know, I mean, if if trying to think about, you know, the the most famous Saharan field commander, obviously Mukhtar Ba Mokhtar, trying to think about like his his daily routine, you know, circa even before the Northern Malian Rebellion of 2012, you know, what was what was the the daily routine of, of Belmokhtar in, in 2010 or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know that it would be possible just given the number of relationships he, he probably had to think about that, that any document could have provided guidance or even that anybody from afar could have provided guidance over the phone.
0: I mean, yeah. Do you, is there, I, I mean, you mentioned sort of there's, there's transfers of money that go on. There may be some, some transfers of personnel or expertise that go on, but What's your sense of how big a difference that makes in the operation of a of a a regional jihadist organization? And I would I would look, for example, um, at like Boko Haram in Nigeria. Uh, You had uh, you know the Islamic State West Africa Province break off from the original Boko Haram for a while, I think partly because of the sort of cachet of the Islamic state name maybe partly because it was sort of a a, a move that you know maybe a lot of the the kind of personnel in Boko Haram uh, agreed with to pledge allegiance to the Islamic state or to to sort of follow the the guy who was designated by the Islamic state as the leader of the group
1: um
0: I, you know iswap was was sort of in ascendance for a while in northeastern Nigeria if there was a competition between it and Boko Haram, you would have to say it was sort of, you know, uh, sort of uh, outpacing Boko Mm. Haram. But you look at it now, I don't really see that much difference in in capability between the original Boko Haram, which has kind of built itself back uh, to some extent, uh, and iSwap, which which maybe has sort of Plateaued or, or even kind of declined a little bit. How much of a of an impact does the, do these kind of contacts with a a central organization really make? I mean, I even so I, to to look at like you know situation in Central or Southern Africa where you have like the Allied Democratic Forces in Congo that are supposedly aligned with. The Islamic State, they, they won't even, they haven't even acknowledged that, but the Islamic State kind of claims credit for every attack that they carry out. Like, is there a, a an advantage to being tied to one of these international groups anymore? Uh, or does the advantage run the other way to some extent? Like, you know, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State gets to claim credit for these local attacks or the regional attacks that, that maybe they don't even really have anything to do with.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, just to take the, 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 you know, ISWAP example from from the Lake Chad Basin, northeastern Nigeria, you had International Crisis Group put out a report recently about the ties to the Islamic State. And, you know, they talked about trainers coming. They talked about uh, transfers of money, you know, even 10000 to to $100,000, you know, seemingly over the, the course of a year arriving every two weeks or so. Um, but, you know, then the the same report said that, you know, the Islamic State was uh, left in the dark about certain crucial decisions. I mean, even, you know, even I had thought for a while that, that when there was that split in Boko Haram, when ISWAP went off on its own in August 2016, it sure looked from all outside appearances like the Islamic State had designated a new emir, a new, a new governor for West Africa. The crisis group report says that that was a decision, it turns out, that was taken locally. This is based on, on defectors' accounts, you know, presumably credible, um, that that decision was taken locally, and then the Islamic State was simply informed. You know, the, the central leadership was just informed, and then they they even tried to reconcile the two factions, and, and the breakaway group said no, and eventually the Islamic State accepted that. So, you know, the crucial decisions—and then you add up some of the money, you know, so 100,000 every two weeks sounds like a lot, uh, you know, over the course of a year. On the other hand, you know, it comes out to something like 2.4 million. And then you divide that up, you know, say the top guys are siphoning off some, some of it has to go to pay for supplies. You know, how much how much really ultimately goes to like recruiting fighters or buying new equipment or something like that for a group with with thousands of fighters trying to operate across a big territory? Some of these sums are, you know, not not that large. And then two, I mean, and, and the financing can be some of the most, you know, opaque, uh, one of the most opaque areas of all this. But looking at AQIM, I mean, they they raked in a tremendous, you know, tens of millions of dollars, right, even coming up to, you know, 90 million or more during the height of the, the Saharan kidnapping economy, um, which really got going around, I don't know, 2008, 2009. How much of that money was fed to, to Al Qaeda core? You know, I don't know. I mean, there were there were disputes like up and down the chain about about that money, um, and then yeah, I mean this issue of like branding, claiming attacks. I mean, you know, definitely if 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 a group is claiming an attack, there's there's a relationship, right? You know, the the Islamic State's weekly Arabic bulletin now routinely carries accounts of of you know attacks and combat in. Um, you know, the in the Sahel region and in, you know, the Lake Chad region. On the other hand, I mean, some of their write ups about the Islamic State, what's called the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, or ISGS. I mean, names of places are spelled wrong. You know, uh, sometimes there are what seem to be lies or inaccuracies. Um, you know, the, the the propagandists of the Islamic State Central seem to be observing a lot of this from afar rather than sort of dictating and shaping events. Um You know, and the other thing, I mean, I, I meant I meant to mention this in in response to one of your earlier questions, too. I mean, this this assumption took hold after nine eleven that you know any jihadist group anywhere was seeking to establish a so-called safe haven, and that once they had that safe haven, that they would then try to attack the United States. And that's you know one of the stated goals of al Qaeda as I understand it, right, is to to cut the to cut off the head of the snake or whatever. But then one finds in, in the Sahara and one finds with, you know, Boko Haram too, um, groups that have now been in existence for, you know, well over a decade, never seeming to try to directly attack even France, you know, or or Britain, let alone the United States. I mean, I've never heard of a, a serious, you know, Boko Haram plot to attack the United States or the UK. I've never heard of a serious AQIM plot to attack to attack France. So, you know, I mean, unless one counts like the antecedents of, of uh, you know, the, the antecedents of the antecedents of, of AQIM in the 1990s in Algeria or something. Um, so these groups seem oftentimes to have their own regional goals that that obviously align to some extent with the goals of Al-Qaeda core or Islamic State core,
0: um, but that ultimately, yeah, are, are regional agendas. And, I mean, even even if there were cases, it seems to me, like, you know, if, if AQIM or one of its kind of uh, child groups uh, were interested in attacking France or there was some kind of a plot to attack France or French interests um, I, I don't know how you would kind of unpack that to say okay this is they're doing this because of this global jihad goal. Rather than, you know, they're doing it for their own very kind of parochial interest, because France has intervened in the Sahel and France has a, you know, a kind of constant presence. And uh, like, I, I don't know how you would separate. Anymore, it, You know, if, if there was a time when you could sort of say, oh, this is kind of part of the global jihad and this is part of a regional thing. I, I don't know. I don't know how you, you make those distinctions anymore. Like a lot of these groups could have their own reasons for attacking Western targets that have nothing to do with global jihad just for their own kind of uh, experiences.
1: No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, and and yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, and in, in Mali and, and elsewhere in the Sahel, like they attack French interests for sure. But and they and they talk about France constantly in their propaganda. Um, but yeah, I mean, they also, you know, you you, uh, you know, you see this with the issue of, of negotiations. Right. I mean, Al-Qaeda, you know, ostensibly the jihadist project is to to overthrow all of the allegedly un-islamic states and and replace them eventually with some kind of caliphate or some, you know, Al-Qaeda's version of the caliphate. But really, like, I mean, Jainim has now appeared to open negotiations with with successive Malian governments over concrete things like hostage exchanges, but also over some kind of broader settlement. As part of that, they ask France to leave. But yeah, I mean, as you're saying, that's or they demand that France leave, really, I should say. But that's not necessarily because of Al-Qaeda's opposition to Western governments. I mean, it, it aligns with it, but I think it comes more out of, yeah, JNM positioning themselves against against a specific
0: what they see as a specific foreign occupier on the territory they care about. That that point actually kind of leads me into to my next question your your book is focused on what you call the meso level uh, of analyzing these groups you, you, you talk about the macro level which is sort of looking at them as these monolithic global structures uh, and then there's a micro level which we'll talk about uh, in, in a bit which sort of hyper focuses on the individual and how how was this person radicalized like what are the channels by which that happened Uh, um which which has also has a lot of problems to it i think um you're sort of looking at it in in the in-between level but even there there's kind of uh a distinction you know there's there's sort of multiple layers at, at that level you have uh the one that I, we've been talking about so far mostly which is sort of the regional versus the global uh, but there's also sort of the local as uh, you know it's kind of set against the regional level yeah. and and looking at um you know not it's sort of similar dynamics in a way you're looking at um a, a regional group like JNIM or like the Islamic State Greater Sahara and and what are the individual kind of field commanders the people in the you know in the localities kind of managing individual units or individual factions how do they relate to this larger group and i think the the example um you know that uh, one example you know that that we've talked about before is uh is Boko Haram and iswap and and the, the extent to which the further you drill down and get into the kind of local faction the extent to which these divisions matter anymore or are sort of lost uh in the in the kind of uh, you know just the local dynamics um i think there's a you know there's an argument to be made in Parts of Afghanistan about how where do you draw the line between uh, a local faction of the Taliban and a local faction of the Islamic State, which could mm-hmm. make the decision to work together, uh, even though their their organizations, Islamic State, Khorasan Province, and and the Taliban are you know very opposed to one another at, at the regional level. Um, you know, and I, I I think also the case of JNIM and and the Islamic State Greater Sahara is is illustrative in a sense because these are two groups that collaborated, it has been, yeah. you know, been known for collaborating with one another, uh, despite the fact that at the global level, you know, there's this hostility between their parent organizations. And yet recently, there have been reports of them fighting one another, but fighting one another not as a manifestation of this bigger conflict between parent groups, fighting one another for very local kind of parochial uh, disagreements, I think. Can you talk about how the uh, the dynamic plays out? I guess at at, at the more local level, and whether uh, you know, even there, these distinctions, like, is there is there any relevance to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think patterns get repeated, actually, you know, up and down the hierarchy. I mean, so that that Al Qaeda, for example, doesn't seem to have full control or or much control sometimes over its affiliates, right? Then you look at the leaders of those affiliates, so Drukdel again, the, the leader of AQIM, right? And so there were clear examples of his authority being being bucked, uh our outright rejected by by field commanders, you know, Belmokhtar, uh, Abdelhamid Abdul Hamid Abu etc. Then you look at the level of those field commanders and you have their authority sometimes being rejected and challenged. And and I'm sure it goes down even to the the unit level. I mean, after a while it's 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 it becomes really opaque to me, you know, because Um, then you start to, once you get to the hyper local level, you're, you're dealing with, you know, uh, sometimes journalism from afar, you know, the sourcing can be weak, et cetera. But I would imagine these patterns go all the way down to the, to the unit level, because uh, these are all human beings at the end of the day. They're not, they're not, you know, 10 foot tall, uh, warriors who, who march in lockstep, right? They're, they're people who, who fight and who have, who have office politics. Um, and yeah, once you get to the fighter level, the micro level, I mean, from, from a lot of what I've heard from the people I consider the most credible, in the Sahel, people are not necessarily being recruited on, on a fully ideological basis. I mean, and, and I've heard some of the, you know, the, the experts who, who I look up to the most say, sometimes the ideological radicalization, if it happens, it happens after people join. Um, you know, and, and one of the best uh, Sahelian journalists I talked to to the book told for the book told me that, you know, he he was talking about the, the Niger borderlands and saying that people recruited to Islamic State there they don't think of themselves as joining Islamic State. You know, they think of themselves as joining a group that can offer them protection. Also in the sense of, you know, in, in the context of, of Mali or the, you know, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger kinda of tri-border area. Um, you have so many different armed groups at this point and, and such uh, fragmentation and sort of hardening of identities among different ethnic groups or, or tribal clusters or clan clusters. Sometimes the dominoes can just fall in a certain way and, and, the, and as each group reacts to violence or, or, or mobilization by another group. Sometimes one group is left to 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 be the natural constituency for the Islamic state or for or for al Qaeda, not necessarily because of an ideological affinity, but also, you know, uh, but but just because of how how their place within the conflict matrix shook out. Um, and then when you look, I mean, just to make one other point, I mean, you know when you look at the at the hostage releases um, that that took place in Mali in early October, some images came out of Yada Gali, the, the JNM leader, as you know. Um, you know, hosting basically a big party after that, um, you know, and, and clips have come out of him speaking. On the one hand, you could say, okay, this, this is just sort of the standard iconography of, of you know, a, uh, you know, of a jihadist leader. But on the other hand, I don't know, you know, I mean, I don't like the term big man in general, but it, it sh- if, if one is going to apply the term big man in African politics, it sure seemed like an instance of, of of a Northern Malian big man meeting with, you know, meeting with his, his constituents after achieving, uh, uh, you know, some political feat for the community by getting all these people's, you know, sons and brothers and whatever is released. I don't think the ideological dimension is, is irrelevant, but I think there's a lot more going on than that.
0: That's, I, I think that's that's a, a good point and it, it, it gets into – uh, sort of the the local dynamics of these groups and, and the way that they interact with the, the society that, the, that surrounds them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to, before we get into talking about like the micro level analysis and why that's not great, um, and then, you know, digging into a, a little bit more of what's in, in the book, um, I, I think, again, another issue that, that you and I have talked about in the past um, is the misguided uh, kind of counterproductive nature uh, of Western interventions, as illustrated, uh, I think almost you know kind of ar- ar- arch- the archetype of this uh, is the France inter- the the French intervention in the Sahel, and uh, th- that's playing out. It's been playing out recently. I mean, you you look at uh, Yadagali and and you know as you say, trying to play sort of a traditional role of a uh, a political figure, kind of dealing. He has constituents. He has, uh, you know, he's trying to, to to you know, kind of play to those constituents. And Jainim, you know, some at least some leaders in Jainim have e- expressed interest in negotiating with the Malian government. And the Malian government has expressed some interest, although uh, the Malian government has changed rather abruptly over in recent months. But uh, <laughs> there's been, you know, an, an expression of interest in negotiating with Jainim. This is one of the things that's caused, one of the parochial kind of local issues that's caused, uh, you know, falling out between Jainim and and the Islamic State, Greater Sahara, it seems. Um, But then you have this French intervention in the sahel this kind of steady you know operation that they've had going for you know it's like indefinitely uh, um, that is busy kind of you know conducting airstrikes on uh jnim leaders on on you know al uh, affiliated leaders in Burkina Faso and and is is sort of treating this as a, a a conflict in light of the global war on terror that has only military options you can't negotiate with terrorists um and it's it, you know it's really like a question of sovereignty almost um in terms of the the approaches here like this is a problem for Mali. It's a regional problem, but the French government doesn't give the Malian government the space to deal with it in the way that it, it you know, it, it seems to want to deal with it. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, sort of that dynamic of of treating, you know, misdiagnosing, I think, the nature of these organizations and what that leads to in terms of uh, kind of international interference in a sense.
1: Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's a lot at stake. Uh you know, and and the French I mean the French went in because uh jihadist groups including AQIM were, were in control of the North and then not only that, they they appeared to be pushing toward uh the I mean they pushed into the center of the country and then they appeared to be pushing toward the capital, depending on how you read their motives in in January twenty thirteen. Um, and the French were really effective at uh you know, militarily dislodging jihadists from those cities. But that's I mean, that's I mean it takes a lot of money and manpower and so forth. But that's relatively easy to do when when, you know, groups are in a fixed position. I mean, that's what I take from, you know, the the coalition campaign against the Islamic State in, in Syria and Iraq and so forth. I mean if if groups are controlling territory, you can dislodge them. But then since then, I mean, yeah, I think some of this war on terror thinking has has really Gotten the French stuck in something that doesn't work. I think they have that sort of cell-based understanding of these groups as as being primarily about a network of quote-unquote high-value targets, and they've taken out a lot of those high-value targets. I mean, in a way, they have you know um, not the full slate, but but you know they've taken out targets that that people have been chasing for for years. I mean, they, they, you know, right during the intervention, you know, in, around February of 2013, they killed Abu Zaid, who was one of the key uh, Saharan commanders. In June, as we mentioned before, they killed Drukdel, they, they killed uh, Yahya Abu Hamam, who was a key AQIM leader, who was the deputy of JNIM I mean, this is like, you know, you would think then this is sort of dream come true for the French, and yet things just get worse and worse and then yeah their 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 presence appears to you know or, or to my mind definitely distorts the politics as you say there's a a sovereignty issue so you know the, the Malian government will, will publicly say they want to negotiate or at least that's what the former president said and then the french will publicly say negotiations are not possible and that starts to seem pretty pretty neo-colonial you know and 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 pretty obviously like condescending and then pretty counterproductive um Right now in Burkina Faso on the on the campaign trail, you know, it's it's a key issue, apparently, like a lot of reporting in the last couple of weeks about opposition candidates, multiple major opposition candidates saying that they would negotiate with jihadists if they were the, the president and then the president saying no. And and I think it, you know, that the French attitude and the French presence can then start to undercut the legitimacy of of heads of state. Right. You know, the, um, uh, you know, one 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 could accuse the, the Burkinabe president of taking the French line. Right. Or if you have the French, again, overruling Malian heads of state um, that that can feed conspiracy theories, too. And there's a lot of there's a lot of anti-French sentiment at this point in, in Mali and Burkina and Niger and so forth. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think that. You know, I think I mean, it's it's incumbent on me at some point because this comes up a lot. I, I need to really write out what it would look like if the French withdrew and, and you know, how I would really make that case. But, yeah, I, I think that their presence probably does more harm than good at this point. Um, and there's I mean, just to add one more thing, there's, there's this there's this bottom up mobilization, too, and and. And and all the reasons that we mentioned before why people might join that aren't just purely ideological and taking out all the quote unquote HVTs doesn't really address that bottom up mobilization.
0: Well, the, yeah, this I mean this is sort of the next uh, you know the next thing I wanted to talk about the, you know your your critique is uh, you know I think uh, very helpful in terms of kind of trying to move people away from this macro understanding of. Uh, jihadist organizations. But there's also this critique uh, of the micro-level analysis, which, as you say, kind of treats uh, people's exposure to or kind of attraction to uh, these groups as, as almost a, like a, a disorder, just a, a sort of uh, they're radicalized. They've been, you know, affected by the propaganda and, uh, you know, driven to a kind of madness in a sense. I mean, you sort of mm-hmm. chalk it up uh, to, you know, just something's wrong with this person or they've been affected in some way. But you lose the the sense of these organizations as Political actors fulfilling a, 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 of an array of needs for you know the the sort of local constituent population around them that draw people in uh, that have nothing to do with sort of the, the the concept of you know radicalization or this sort of psychological view that we get kind of hyper focused on. Talk talk about. Th- those needs and what, what draws people to the, the you know, sort of complex uh, kind of set of things that draw people to these organizations?
1: Yeah, th- I think alongside the counterterrorism approach, the, the, the idea of dismantling terrorist networks, etc., there's also been the, the quote unquote CVE agenda, you know, the, the countering violent extremism agenda. And this, this assumption, you know, like you say that, that this is a kind of a sickness, that, that that it all comes back to ideological and religious radicalization. You still find the idea, I mean, now almost twenty years into this war on terror or whatever it is, that that it comes back to people's problematic readings of the Quran or something. That if only you could get them, you know, in touch with the right sheikh who could explain to them the meaning of the Quran, then then the violence would stop, you know? And you get and, and that I think is just way too simplistic and 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 wrongheaded a lot of times. And it doesn't speak to yeah, why people would join a, a group for self-protection or, you know, what what uh, a UNDP study of Boko Haram and, and Al Shabaab found a couple of years ago, you know, that, that the key factor or the or the most common factor for why people joined those groups was that they or somebody close to them had had a negative experience with the security forces. Um, you know, and and so yeah, a CVE agenda can't can't speak to any of those dynamics, and it risks doing harm in terms of demonizing entire societies. You know, and saying there's there's something wrong with your you know your society and your understanding of religion, and saying that to people who haven't picked up arms, right, or saying that you know the way to deal with with uh, radicalization and violence in your society is for the entire society to take on Western liberal values, right? That may have nothing to do with the conflict. And some of these are are understandings that are transposed directly from people's assumptions about Afghanistan, you know, not even from the real Afghanistan, but from from the Afghanistan that they imagine. Then they they have assumptions about that, that they then transpose to the Sahel almost directly, you know, that that the solution to, uh, you know, violence and extremism in the Sahel is girls education or something. I'm all in favor of of educating girls. Right. But the idea that that's going to solve the conflict or that. You know, and and then there are a lot of assumptions about you know other forms of Islam in the region, right? Which are often deeply, deeply conservative as well, right? I mean, you know, oftentimes the people who are held up as as the the credible voices in CVE they don't subscribe to Western liberal values. I mean, I've, I've been meaning to um, to write up an exchange of letters that I or correspondence basically between the Central Malian jihadist leader Amadou Koufa and and a Sheikh Hamali Sheikh you know in the capital and and or actually somebody based overseas. But but the Malian sheikh was saying, you know, you're going all about this the wrong way. You know, this violence isn't going to work. But then he also said in the same letter, you know, yeah, let's kick out the French and, and build a theocratic state. You know, you're just going about it wrong. I mean, so, you know, people, e- even on the nonviolent side, they, they don't, again, necessarily share all the kind of Western liberal assumptions that the CVM practitioners want to impose on them. Um, and yeah, so I, I think that, you know, then, then the combination of the the hard counterterrorism and the, the often misguided or actively counterproductive CVE, um, that that combination has been really unfortunate and has has crowded out the the politics of the whole thing, which are foremost to me.
0: There's uh, an impulse, I think, I think that's well-meaning. Um, uh, in sort of the the liberal kind of view of of jihadist organizations that wants to downplay the role of religion and i when i say i think it's well-meaning it's it, i think the 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 impetus is like you don't want to slide into this sort of you know the the pattern you know, in more conservative circles of just you know kind of uh, saying there's something wrong with Islam Islam right. is is the problem uh this is you know you, you, this is a whole religion that's kind of rotten you know to the to the core and that, that's that's really you know really beyond the pale kind of dangerous uh dangerous talk um so people want to avoid that but i i think you know one of the things you talk about in the you know in the book they kind of There's a tendency to move too far in the other direction and just kind of assume that, you know, these organizations – you know, either the leaders of these organizations don't believe – what they're saying in terms of you know their their uh, the way they use Islam is sort of this idea that they're very cynically kind of manipulating the religion, um, or that they're you know as you said you know they're they're sort of misguided and if you just get the right imam to to sort of talk to these guys or the right you know uh, fakir to talk to these these guys they'll be able to show them that uh, they're they're misguided but it's a much more complex uh, relationship between religion and how these groups kind of appeal to people. Uh, and I wonder if you could sort of, sort of talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. And thanks. I mean, this is, this is a really, I think, important and and interesting topic. And, And this is where I break with a lot of political scientists who study conflict. I mean, I think that, I mean, definitely by no means all political scientists, but, or economists for that matter, but, but there's been a pretty dominant perspective that, that feels that, yeah, the conflict is about a material competition for power. And, and I think, I, I mean, I'm trying to chart a course in the middle where I don't want to view these guys as, as, as one cookie cutter ideological type. But nor do I want to say that ideology doesn't matter, that they're all cynical and so forth. I mean, I think, I mean, one thing I try to develop in the book is the idea that in some ways there's actually a political benefit to being considered anathema, that that one can that it can help with recruitment, that it can take on, you know, it can help leaders take on a certain even romantic aura. Um, I also think there doesn't have to be a, a a choice, right? Somebody can be all of the above, right? Is is Yada Ghali a super shrewd politician with decades of experience in in you know conflict politics under his belt? Yeah, no question. Is he, you know, was he religiously radicalized? Probably right? Not to the point where he's completely inflexible, but for the research, for the field work, you know, I met at least five, six people who, who, you know, knew him well, at least in the past. And a lot of them felt, yeah, that he had undergone some process of radicalization. So it can be all of the above. And to the fighters too, like I mentioned, I mean, many of them may be recruited on, on some other basis, but they can also be recruited on multiple, you know, platforms simultaneously or they can be radicalized as I mentioned in the work of this colleague i mean they can be radicalized after they join um and then i think the you know the global vocabularies can be helpful and they can be adapted right to the local context you know to to describe the government as a government of unbelievers to describe the the french as crusaders you know this 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 provides a kind of you know set of rhetorical tools that i think yeah, figures like
0: Agali find quite useful. That that's an interesting point, and it's one of the, something that I thought was interesting in, in the book. You talk about, uh, and this is in reference to Abdul Malik Drukdell, uh, you know, the former AQIM leader. We've mentioned him already. Uh, he sort of would do this kind of code switching thing, where when he was talking about uh, kind of scholarly religious. Issues He would speak or, you know, communicate in classical Arabic and, you know, very formal way. Uh, But then he would switch. I mean, he'd switch to using, you know, Algerian, the Algerian dialect and talk about, uh, you know, corruption and French colonialism and all these kind of very uh, local or or at least regional kind of grievances. Are there what are what are, you know, the other sort of examples of that in terms of uh, leaders kind of. Uh, bouncing between, even even to the extent of like the literal language that they're using uh, to kind of you know appeal to people across these multiple dimensions. Yeah, thanks. That was,
1: that was one of my favorite parts of the of the book too. That 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 observation about Druktel comes from uh, David Gutellius, who's a really brilliant scholar of, of Mali, and yeah, that was a brilliant um, brilliant catch on his part. I mean, to notice that that code switching and then. Um, the uh, another brilliant analyst of Mali Andrew Lebovich, has written about this with with Amadou Kufa and others have noticed this with Kufa too um, the, uh, the the central Malian jihadist leader who's ethnically Pul, right or/ slash Fulani which is now this ethnic group that that is um, you know really sort of in the in the spotlight including oftentimes in, in really you know nasty and, and unfortunate ways. Um, but Kufa, you know, has has seemed to tack back and forth sometimes between presenting himself as a as a pull leader, and sometimes presenting himself as the leader of a, of a multi ethnic jihadist movement. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, really really complicated. Um, yeah, code switching, identity switching. Um, yeah, speaking to different audiences at the same time. I mean, even in in this. Uh, recording that he addressed to some of the the pool leaders in Bamako in, in 2017 you know even in the same letter he seemed to same recording I mean he seemed to be torn about how to present himself to how to describe his relationship with his co-ethnics and so forth it's it's really complicated
0: I wonder uh, let's let's um, you know you, as you said earlier you, you sort of f- uh, kind of focus in this book is on the level of the uh, the field commander, and you talk about the different, uh, the wide variety. Again, <laughs> not not to sympathize with these guys, but the wide variety of relationships that they have to manage. There's the uh, you you cl- you put them in three categories: the internal vertical, the internal horizontal, and the external. Um, give, give you know, talk a little, you know, more detail about how how many different kind of stakeholders. Uh, you know, a field commander in one of these organizations has to kind of interact with. Yeah. So, I
1: mean, you know, you take, I mean, Belmokhtar, again, probably the most famous commander, right? You know, Saharan commander in in his time, um, probably died in 2016, but, but possibly still alive. I mean, if you take him... You know even right on the eve of the malian northern northern malian rebellion in, in 2012 right so he had this rivalry with another saharan commander abu Zayd, but they were forced to collaborate on all kinds of issues right so you know the the, the canadian diplomat robert fowler was kidnapped um and and held with uh, belmokhtar's men if memory serves right describes the scene when when belmokhtar and abu zaid were both handing over different Um, hostages that they had as as part of a single hostage exchange and how there was basically this face off between Belmokhtar and Abu Zaid. Um, So at stake, even in that one moment, you have you have the relationship between those two field commanders, you have Belmokhtar trying not to lose face in front of his men or in front of Abu Zaid's men. You have the relationship with um, negotiators, and some of the negotiators were, I don't know, I I don't want to use the word serial, they were repeat negotiators, right? So this was a long term relationship. Bel um, Belmokhtar, you know, outside of the context of that moment, he he married into local communities slash tribes. He had uh, recruits in different parts of the Sahel, you know, so he would be in northern Mali or whatever, but then also sort of trying to manage from a distance this small cell in Mauritania. He was fighting with his superior Drukdel, um, you know, interacting with uh, business people. And then there's all these relationships that are, you know, out of my view, even, I mean, weapons, suppliers, et cetera, right? So you know, it adds up, I think, to, to, you know, several dozen key relationships at any given time. The, uh,
0: I, I, I wanted to ask you, well, I guess, I mean, this is really an open-ended question and I don't, I don't really know how to ask it except to just make it kind of open-ended, but having done this work and having kind of thought about uh, the nature of these groups um, and and you know developed a, a framework for thinking about them that I think is uh, y- you know unique and and useful uh, that kind of gets away from the two sort of dominant ways of viewing jihadism. Uh, if you had to like if you were briefing Joe Biden, let's say like or 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 Emmanuel Macron or somebody like how to deal with um, uh, these organizations, what, uh, what are like the two or three things that you would want to hit, you know, really stress to them and sort of trying to change the way they, they approach this, uh, this issue? Yeah. I mean, several, several have
1: already come up. I mean, but just to, to sort of try to put it more systematically, I mean, giving space for negotiations you know would be one of the top ones for me i don't necessarily think that negotiations will succeed obviously there's a lot of reasons why they would fail right and there's a lot of reasons to doubt that, that jihadists could ever be trusted to operate in good faith but i do think that it's worth a try i think there's also a sizable demand among sahelian populations and elites now for for negotiations and as you mentioned earlier right the the issue of sovereignty deserves some consideration just on its own. Right. If, if a lot of people want to negotiate, if the if the governments want to negotiate or leading politicians want to, that deserves some space without this kind of neo-colonial, you know, foreclosure of, of that debate. Um, I do think also that, you know, there needs to be much more serious thought about how to how to wind down the French presence. and And if I were France, I would I would seriously think about how to do that, you know, how to how to create a timeline for that. Um, and if I were the, the you know, Americans, I would quietly say to Paris, right, I, I think, you know, this is not going anywhere, ultimately, and, and you all need to figure out a different approach. Um, I think that the French and American governments uh, can and should do as much as they can to address the humanitarian crises in the region. And there's already a lot of, you know, efforts. I mean, there's, there was a major donor conference a few Weeks ago, you know, the, the U.S. gave a, a substantial amount of money, you know, over $200 million if if, uh, if memory serves. So it's not that no efforts are being made. But, I mean, these are, you know, the Sahel, Niger, Mali, etc. these are places that would have tremendous humanitarian needs even if they didn't have any armed conflict. So, I mean, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge area as well. Um, yeah, and then, you know, I, I do think that, you know, most of the CVE work or all of the CVE work should should stop, you know, and, and that those efforts should be uh, redirected or, or at the very least rethought, you know, because I, I think there's I don't think those programs achieve very much. And, and I think there's this real risk of, of uh, demonizing entire societies. So that's my initial list.
0: Take people through. Uh, so the the structure of the book, if you're you know, if you're going to buy it and you should, uh, the <laughs> structure of the book is uh, you sort of lay out your argument and then you go through a series of case studies. And I, I the the you know chapters of the book are each one is dealing with a a, a particular case study. Uh, the first five chapters to me sort of tell a, a, a story in and of themselves because you start with uh you know the earliest kind of manifestations of jihadist you know violence in in Algeria and sort of take like walk through uh, the progression of that, you know, of GIA from from you know its earliest days into the Al Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb stage, and then uh, beyond that as it sort of expands south, and even kind of not, it's not even an expansion anymore. It's kind of moved. The center of gravity has moved south into Mali uh, and into Burkina Faso. So it's sort of a, a story all, you know, kind of all in itself. And then you go into a couple of other, uh, a little more kind of distinct uh, case studies after that sort of take people through, um, the, the, the rest of the book in, in just like a couple of minutes, what, what you, uh, covered and, and what you sort of learned from, from each of these case studies.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I struggled a bit with this. I mean, because there's, there's a chronological story to be told, there's just a history to be told, but then there's also a lot of geography to cover. And so I opted, I mean, I hope it works for, for, for both right, to try to tell the chronological story, but then to, to shift it around. Yeah, because, as you say, the, the center of gravity shifts. Um. So, you know, the, the GIA, the armed Islamic group in Algeria, I think a really interesting group that, that deserves, you know, and a, and a horrendous, I mean, just, you know, in a way, the most the most brutal and, and, you know, and some of the leaders do appear in that case to be just really sick individuals. Um. You know the, but the GIA, in some sense, the most successful of all these groups too. I mean, by one of their own estimates, and maybe it's kind of a fantasy, but you know, calculating that they had 25,000 fighters at one point. I mean, and, and they pulled in all kinds of different units around their peak in, in 1994 or so. Um, so I look at them. I look at this splinter group that comes out of them, the the Salafi group for preaching and combat, which is usually known by its its French acronym, GSPC. That group, GSPC, then later becomes uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic Maghreb as, as basically just a rebranding. And there in particular, I look at, you know, the, their breakaway from GIA, but then also what I call this broken triangle. So, you know, the relationship between Drukdel as, as emir and then these two uh, Saharan field commanders who are hard to control, um, Abu Zaid and, and, uh, and Balmokhtar, then I get into northern Mali, and so particularly looking at the role of, of yadagali his movement, uh, Ansar al-Din or, or Defenders of the Faith, and then how that fed into the, the Jainim coalition that we've been talking about. Um, then I look in chapter four at central Mali. And so, yeah, how, you know, how does uh, the what's now the, the wing of Jainim there operate, right? What what kinds of constituencies they draw on how does that then enter into this wider kind of conflict matrix that they that they help to kick off right so you know inter-ethnic conflict intra-ethnic conflict rampant security force abuses um etc and then i shift and look in in chapter five at this you know what's now often called the tri-border area of, of Mali, niger burkina and there i'm looking a lot at um at ISGS, at the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara. I mean, one thing about, about the book is, I mean, it, events move just so fast that, you know, I try to cover the history through 2019, but I mean, a lot of a lot of a lot has changed in 2020. I mean, the death of Drupzdel, the the overthrow of, uh, you know, Ibeka in Mali, um, the, the shift from uh, accommodation to conflict between JNM and ISGS was, was beginning to happen of course in 2019, but it's been much more, you know, uh, prominent this year in 2020 when, when I was no longer, you know, you can't edit a book until the, until the last minute. So, yeah. So I mean, in a way the, the book is now very much historical, even when talking about 2019, but hopefully, uh, some enduring value. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then there's I, I mean and then there there are you know additional case studies. there's a Libya, uh, there's Mauritania. Was there anything that stuck out to you in, in, uh, in those cases as distinct from uh, some of the things you learned looking at at uh, you know Algeria and the Sahel?
1: I mean Mauritania it's hard because in a way there's there's a temptation to hold out Mauritania as kind of an alternative model. You know, so there haven't been there hasn't been much jihadist violence in the country since 2011. Um, there seems to be, you know, there were allegations or, or, you know, based on documents found in bin Laden's compound that, that maybe the Mauritanian government and AQIM had signed an explicit deal. Um, I never saw evidence that would have convinced me that they that they made a tight pact. But there does seem to be a, a de facto non-aggression pact. And some of that appears based on the Mauritanian authorities. Um, you know, making really different choices than other governments in the region. So there's not French combat forces in their country that I know of, right, or at least not that are publicly, you know, disclosed. There's uh, th- There was a prison dialogue program that ended up releasing a lot of hardliners and suspected jihadists and so forth. There's a fair amount of flexibility within Mauritanian society to, like, preach against democracy and so forth. I mean, people still get, you know, some of those clerics still sometimes get arrested and so forth, but but they're treated much more... Gently than they were when 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 Mauritania had a real jihadist problem, um, you know, 15, 10 years ago. Um, But on the other hand, you know, there are limits to saying that any kind of like Mauritanian model could be applied elsewhere. I mean, Mauritania is it's a geographically large country, but in terms of population, maybe four or five million people um really different dynamics than, you know, political dynamics, um, you know, ethnic racial dynamics than than some of the other countries in the region. So yeah, there are limits to like the generalizability of of the Mauritanian
0: case. All right. Uh, so the book is, again, Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups. It's available in uh, paperback. It's available in uh, ebook. Uh Is there going to be an audio book? I, I, I actually, <laughs> like, said... <laughs> you can buy like in the intro you you weren't here for that but the intro i was like uh it's available in audiobook and then i was like wait a minute no i meant to say like on kindle and like ebook but (laughs) i said audiobook like i blurted it out and then i was like i'll have to ask so i'm asking (laughs) is there going to be an audiobook of this
1: i think i uh i I stutter too much and have too many verbal ticks to to...
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well you have to you got to hire somebody you could hire like uh you know patrick stewart or, or somebody to, to yeah, you know, give it see. give it some heft
1: <laughs> yeah if anybody wants to do it pro bono they can let me know. Um, <laughs> no nah, no no plans in the works yeah but maybe maybe if i did it with a lot of uh editing i could pull off a, an audiobook
0: <laughs> yeah all right all right so no audiobook i i i, <laughs> I didn't actually think there was going to be one but like i said i like blurted it out Without thinking about it, so I figured I'd ask. <laughs> All right, um, but there I will. Uh, I'll have a link to the the book uh, in the show description, or you know, maybe a couple links if I can. Uh, uh, if I'll dig up a couple that aren't Amazon, we're we're trying not to line jeff bezos's pockets uh, any yeah, more than necessary uh, but but it is available there i'm just not going to link to it uh but I'll, I'll find a couple of other links to uh, the book you guys should definitely check it out uh alex thurston uh thanks again uh for coming on the program
1: thank you i, I really appreciate it yeah really really interesting talking with you as always
0: All right, that does it for us. Uh, I want to thank again Alex Thurston for coming on the program. That book, one more time, is Jihadists of North Africa and the Sahel, Local Politics and Rebel Groups. It's really excellent. And uh, if you're interested in sort of the war on terror and jihadism and, and those issues, I think you, you definitely should pick it up. Uh, it's a, a really kind of unique perspective on, on the topic uh, and, and a useful one, I think. Uh To all of you, again, uh, happy Thanksgiving if we don't talk before then. And as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.